when we were staying in Sheboygan, Wisconsin, after Hudson's birth, uh, our car needed an oil change, and so of course, go on your phone or computer or whatever, find a place that does oil changes, and I found one, took it there, and it was one of those places that does this thing where they, you drive the car over like the pit, and there's somebody below you, and you sit in your car, and so there's somebody down there doing the oil stuff, and then um, somebody came in front, and they pop your hood, and they're doing stuff under the hood, and I'm just sitting there waiting um, for it to happen, because it's supposed to be really fast, uh, and then the person in the under the hood said, turn your car on, please. And I was like, okay, turn it on. And all these warning lights came on. And so I was like, that doesn't seem right. And I was like, hey, did they put the, did you put oil back in the car? And they're like, <gasps> you know, I heard like this gas, like some muttering. And then they're like, no. And I'm like, should I turn it off? Like, yeah, turn it off. So I turn it off. Um, and so uh, that wasn't very fun or pleasant. But Katie and I, we've gone to back to Sheboygan a couple times visiting Hudson's birth parents. and. Um, we drive past that place, and you know I always have this little mutter under my breath. I'm never going back there, again. you know. <laughs> you know, so that you know I don't have these warm, positive fuzzies in my in in my heart when I see them, um, because that experience ruined their reputation for me. Their name now for me. When I see their name, when I hear their name, there's I have no trust there, and I'm just like, no, I want nothing to do with that. And a business's name can be ruined um, without us even going to that business. We just had. We have lots of things break apparently, but we, our dish, our, our clothes machine just needed to be um, repaired. It was kind of a silly thing that didn't even need to be repaired. Could have figured it out ourselves. But anyway, you know, we needed to find a place who can do appliance repair. So we go online, um, find businesses in Woodstock, and then you read the reviews. And we are going to find a place. Okay, we usually try to get four stars or above. Below four stars, and eh. you know, apparently their name, you know, their name isn't very good. They don't have a very good reputation with people. And so we picked a place that had good reviews, and could we trust this place? And maybe there's other ways we can figure out uh, what are ways someone can ruin um, their reputation. It could be through our actions, uh, that your reputation gets ruined with other people, and perhaps um, somebody doesn't even meet you, uh, but other people are talking about you, and so you have either a good or a bad reputation with someone you've never even met before. Um, or somebody, you, somebody could actually ruin your reputation falsely. You know, they could be spreading slander and lies about you and so it's like you're actually a good person um, but your reputation isn't good and so uh, reputation is this powerful thing and today we're doing our second message in this series called God's Christmas Presence. <laughs> Last week Katie said there was sort of like this time delay you know like when we take pills and it's like a timed release of people getting it. Anyway God's Christmas Presence uh, even though we may know all these details about Jesus' birth you know there's angels and there's shepherds and there's wise men and there's a star and there's all these things but we may not know well why was he born why did the son of god become a human being why is if it's part of the gospel why is it good news that he did so and so we're learning these past two weeks and then tomorrow the theme is jesus was born to bring us back into god's presence and this evening we're spending time in the book of ezekiel and he was a man who lived about 2600 years ago which it's isn't it kind of crazy that this book we hold in our hand we read things written like 2,600 years ago. It's just you know, crazy. He, but he served as a priest in the temple in the city of Jerusalem in Israel. God had, had the people build this temple. Uh, and in the moment they built it, you know, they kind of like consecrated it, did all the things, got the priests ready. Um, and then God brought his presence in. And it was his, said his glory came and dwelt in the temple. And it was so powerful that the priests had to walk out of the temple because it was so powerful. And because Ezekiel was a priest for this temple, this made an important part of Israel's 
spiritual life. And he was still, when he was still a young man, himself and the rest of the nation experienced this national tragedy. The nation of Babylon invaded their country um, and took a bunch of people off to, back to Babylon, separated them from everyone else, um, and they sieged Jerusalem and they destroyed the temple. And the center of their life with God, the temple where his presence dwelt, was gone. You can expect them to wonder, how, God, how could this happen? Are we your people? Why did you let this happen? Why did this happen to us? Where are you? And when Babylon came to town, it, it took a bit of time for them to fully conquer Israel. There's kind of several stages to it. And then um, 586 B.C. is when um, they sieged Jerusalem and finally got in and then destroyed the temple. And that's when it was all over. But 11 years before that, 597 B.C., um, Ezekiel, um, they, they hauled off all these leading citizens of of Israel. That was one of their strategies. Come in, take out a bunch of the people that are kind of like the cultural influencers that keep their way of life going. Take out the the leaders, the government officials, the religious people. Um, take them out. And so that kind of almost takes the heart and soul out of this other nation. And so Ezekiel, he was part of this group of people that got hauled off 11 years before Jerusalem got actually got conquered. And the book of Ezekiel is written while Ezekiel is in exile in Babylon, thousands of miles away. Actually, I don't know how many miles. Lots of miles away from um, his homeland. And other Israelites were still remaining back in the land as Babylon took over. But while Ezekiel's in Babylon, something happened that probably was quite surprising to him. God started giving him these visions um, and started speaking to him. He was a priest, but God made this priest into a prophet. Prophets were the people um, who were getting God's messages and they're supposed to then deliver that message to the people. They're the ones who are the, the go-betweens, telling them what God was saying. And as Ezekiel, it's, it's kind of neat because it's like, well, how could you get news from back home? Uh, there's, how long is it going to take for a letter to get there or somebody to run or ride their horse? or you know, There's no email or news station. But Ezekiel kind of almost becomes like this news anchor. As he's like getting word from back home, God's showing him what's happening back home. And he's reporting back to them. You know, people are maybe having hope, like, God wouldn't let this happen, like, we're still going to stand. He's like, no, uh, it's happening, like, they're being taken over, um, Jerusalem just fell, and so he's getting these visions from God of what's happening back home, and as he's sitting among these other leading citizens and government officials in Babylon, they're asking, how could this happen? Where is God? And the message that God speaks to them through Ezekiel is, I'm the one doing this, and it's because you've broken your commitment to me. Remember last week we talked about, even but it was like they just took their vows to God. There's like this wedding ceremony in Mount Sinai. They take their vows to each other. And before the ink's even dry on the, the, you know, the marriage certificate, they're already like sleeping around with other gods. They make this golden calf and they start worshiping it. And they break their vows right away. And God's saying, I've been patient for all these years. And I've been warning you. And I told you from the beginning, if you break your commitments to me and refuse to turn back to me, this is what's going to happen. You're going to leave the land, and my presence is going to leave too. And he warned them through other prophets saying, guys, you need to turn back. You need to turn back. You need to turn back. And they didn't. And so finally, the consequences God warned about happened. And yet God doesn't leave them where they are. Through Ezekiel, God speaks a message that makes clear, this is why you're in this situation. But he also says, I'm going to do something about the situation you're in. I'm going to bring you back home and restore you. And the big question this passage answers is, why... And how does God act to bring us home? It's kind of two parts. Why and how does God act to bring us home? Why and how does God act 
to bring us home. So first, let's begin with the why. This is in verses 16 through 23. Why and how does God act to bring us home? So in verses 16 through 23, God tells Ezekiel the problem that needs to be solved. He says, the people have defiled the land by their deeds and their ways. Their shedding of blood, their worshiping of false gods has brought God's righteous judgment upon them. He uses the word wrath, and we hear that word in the New Testament as well. And from the beginning, God told them, if you do this, um, the land and my presence, this land I'm giving you and my presence I'm giving you, these are a privilege, not a right. You don't have a right to these things. These are a privilege, and that means you can forfeit that privilege. If you just totally disregard me as your God, as the one you've covenanted with, as the one you've committed to, you're going to forfeit that privilege. And now finally, um, it's, it's come, and they forfeited the privilege. He removes his presence, and he scatters them among the nations. And the result of this, though, it kind of creates this problem for God. He says, as a result of this, now my holy name has been profaned. In other words, they've given him a bad reputation. He quotes what, the pe- what other people are saying in verse 20. He says this, verse 20, When they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name, in, in that the, the people said of them, These are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of this, his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel profaned among the nations to which they came. And so he's like, people are out there, as they're getting scattered about, people are like, these are the people of the Lord. You know, I guess something must be up with their God that they got kicked out of their land. And he's saying, my holy name, my reputation is being profaned. And that's one of Ezekiel's big concerns. He re- well, he reveals that's one of God's big concerns. My reputation is on the line here. In other words, when people are hearing his name, they're not having the sort of reaction that they should be having to it. You know, maybe there should be this place that uh, in town that's like really good, but somehow they've gained a bad reputation. So when we hear their name, we're not having their reaction to them that we would have if we knew them up close and personal. And so God's concern is that people will think less of him than is actually true of him. He's saying like people are going to think less of me. They're going to think something that's not true of me because of this situation. There's several ways is interesting. I did a little research. I'm like, man, what does this mean? Profaning his name? And like, does that happen in other cases too? And there's like at least three things that Ezekiel says profane God's name or like give him a bad reputation. And the first, um, his reputation is damaged by his people's failure to keep their commitment to him. When his people are unfaithful to him and treat him as unimportant, unimportant God's name is profane. And other people look at that and it's like, wow, look, you know, look how they're treating their God. Um, he must not be that great of a God, or he must be kind of unimportant. At the same time, he's supposed to be receiving this honor, this respect, this reverence and worship from them, um, and he's not receiving that. And so that's like, you aren't giving me um, the importance that I'm due. And so his reputation can be damaged by his people's failure to keep their commitment to him. And God's response to that, to make his true nature known, he responds with his justice to cleanse people of their sin, to cleanse people of their idolatry. And if he didn't, he would look like he doesn't take sin and idolatry and rebellion seriously. You know, you go to a, a country and it's like, if everything's in disarray, you're like, wow, the government officials or the king or whoever must not be very great here. And if you go to Israel and everyone's just doing their, what's right in their own eyes, they're just worshiping whoever they want, it's like, wow, the God here must not be very in control of this. He must not be a great king. And so God shows that he's not a doormat or a pushover when he responds to sin. Second, his reputation would be damaged if he failed to keep his commitment to them. So if God failed to keep his commitment, 
to his people, his reputation would be damaged. And Ezekiel reveals us back in chapter 20, he's talking, going back to the whole story of Israel, and he's like, he brought you out of Egypt, brought you to Mount Sinai, he was doing all these things, 40 years wandering in the desert, and he says, even as he was saving them, even as he's saving them from Egypt, the people are rebelling against him. And so what do they deserve? I mean, it's, it's like they deserve his justice. They deserve to be abandoned. But God says, there's all these nations watching me bring you out of Egypt. And he says, if I would have abandoned you, that would have profaned my holy name. That would have given me a bad reputation because it would have shown um, I don't keep my commitments. And so God, in keeping his commitment to them, even as they don't deserve it, um, is showing his grace, his mercy, his patience. And so on the one hand, God can keep his reputation by executing justice um, against sin. On the other, God can keep his reputation by um, showing grace and patience in the light of our sin. And then lastly, this is what Ezekiel is talking about here. His reputation is damaged when other nations interpret his people's punishment as weakness on his part. So when other nations are watching and they're like, okay, Israel got kicked out of their land. These are the people of the Lord. Well, he must not be a, a very strong God if he can't even keep his people safe in his own land. Because in that day, um, people thought like every nation kind of had its own God running it. And so if one nation comes up uh, to Israel and they take Israel over, well, the God of Babylon must be stronger than the God of Israel because he just they're just able to take over that land. And so God's saying all these other nations are looking and they're thinking I'm weak, but because I've punished you for your sin and for your rebellion, and now they all think I'm weak. And so God's saying, I need to do something about that. And so um, he says in order to make his true nature known, he's going to respond with power to bring his people back to their homeland. People are thinking he's weak. He's like, no, I'm going to take my people right out of Babylon and I'm going to bring them back. And then we learn more about what he's going to do um, in the next verses. But in verses 22 and through 23, God makes clear, why is he going to bring these people back home? So verses 22 to 23, he says, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. So the big question this passage answers is, why and how does God act to bring us home? And the answer to the why question is this, to make the truth about him known make the truth about him known. Why does God act to bring us home? It's to make the truth about him known. And at the end of our passage, we're reading the beginning part of it, but in the very last verse, God says he's acting so that Israel also will know that he's the Lord. He, in those two verses we just read, he says, I'm acting so that the nations will know I'm the Lord, they'll know the truth about me, and Israel, I'm acting so that you'll know the truth about me. And so there's all these, he's revealing what is he really like? He's revealing his true nature. And all of this, God's concern is that people know the truth about him. And truly knowing God is what we were made for. And God does not want the knowledge of him lost because of his people's sin or because the nations are misinterpreting him punishing or disciplining uh, his, his nation, his children, for the sin that they have committed. And God makes clear that he sees something in his people. He, he doesn't see something in his people that's motivating him to act. He's saying, there's something in me that is motivating me to act. This is um, me revealing my character, 
my nature, making the truth about me known so people will really know what, what does God's name stand for. When people hear it, they have the right idea, the right um, response, and he has a, the right reputation. So that's why God acts to bring us home. Next we see how God acts to how God acts to bring us home. And so what does he do? And this passage was originally addressed to the nation of Israel, who were in physical exile, but their physical exile was a, a, a picture of what's happening with them spiritually, their spiritual condition. They're separated from God. You know, this is God's land, this is where his temple was, and now they've been separated from all that. And so they're they're alienated, they're estranged, they're separated from God spiritually. And Israel's story is a reflection of all of humanity's story. We've been going through Genesis, and you go back to Genesis, we saw how our home was supposed to be with God in his presence. He created the Garden of Eden to be a home between us and him, where he dwelled with Adam and Eve. But then their choice to reject God's authority over them led to their exile from the Garden of Eden and from God's presence. So the Garden of Eden, it's like the land of Israel. They got exiled from the land and his presence, God's presence, God's presence was there. They get exiled, separated from his presence, the temple. Now our problem, along with Israel's, is that we need to be brought back home to God. And so, turning to our big question, why and how does God act to bring us home? In verses 30, 24 through 38, God tells us four actions he takes that answer how he brings us home. So first, to make the truth about him known, God rescues us. To make the truth about him known, God rescues us. So if you look at verse 24, you'll see how he does this. He says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all countries and bring you into your own land. And we're all in exile from God because of our sin. Sin's penalty is separation, alienation, Exile from God. To be under God's wrath and to be under God's judgment is to be exiled from him. It's to have, be absent of God. And that's the just and fair penalty. And actually, if you think about it, um, it's what we wanted. It's what Adam and Eve wanted. And it's what we so often show that we want. We resist and reject God's authority over us. Because we want to be on the throne. We want to be king. It's like, I don't want you in my life telling me what to do. I want you out of my life. And I want to do what I want to do. And so actually... Being separated from God, um, we're like, wow, that seems pretty harsh, God. But actually, it's what we so often express is what we would like. You know, God, quit meddling around in my business. Quit telling me what to do from your word. Quit telling me what to do uh, through other people saying, like, hey, you know, you got this thing in your life. No, I don't. Don't be telling me what I want to do. We want to be free of God's influence so often. But we do want the privileges of God. We want to, him to give us what we want. We want the goodies, we want the blessings, we want the healing. We want him to be available when we need him. And we want a God who is more like a genie than a king. You know, I don't want you there on the throne, running my life. I would just rather more rub the lamp and have you come out and give me my wishes when it's convenient for me. And that's what Israel wanted. And they didn't want to follow his ways, but they certainly wanted him to protect them from invaders. And so when he didn't, they're asking, well, what's up, God? Why don't you have our back? But God finally gave them what they wanted, life without him. Life without him means exile. And it's not like he didn't warn them. He told them over and over again, you need to turn back to me. You need to come back to those commitments we made at Mount Sinai. You need to come back to living in love for other people, in love for me. And they didn't turn, and so he sent them into exile. And we need to be rescued from the penalty 
our disobedience to God. We need to be rescued from the penalty of making ourselves king over our own lives. We don't deserve it at all, but to make the truth about him known, to make his grace and his power known, God rescues us from that. He lets Israel go off into what they want. You want life without me? This is what it looks like. I've rescued you, and I'm trying to give you uh, a life filled with my blessing, but if you don't want it, okay. And God rescues us from that. Second, to make the truth about him known, God reconciles us. To make the truth about him known, God reconciles us. We see this in verse 25. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. From all your idols, I will cleanse you. Our sin problem needs to be dealt with. Our relationship with God is broken, not from anything he's done, but from what we have done. And sin kills our relationship with God. And because of that, we are just soaked in that death. You know, every time we sin, it's like soaking us in death. And we need to be made clean. And reconciliation is how a broken relationship is fixed. And for God to make us clean means he wipes the record of our sin from us. He forgives us for what we have done. Forgiveness is given to the person who's done the wrong, and it has to come from the person who has been wrong. And that's why God has to be the one who can cleanse us. We can't clean ourselves of our sin. We have to go to God, and he has to be the one to grant us the cleanness. God brings us home from exile, and he releases us from the penalty of our sin. We don't have to pay him back. He's cleansed us of that sin. And third, to make the truth about him known, God renews us. To make the truth about him known... God renews us. Look at verses 26 and 27. He says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Sin is just a surface level problem. And sin means missing the mark and we miss the mark when we don't live with love for God or others but that's only this symptom of a deeper problem and last week we heard God call the people of Israel stiff-necked which means they're resistant to God's leading you know you try to turn somebody and it's like they won't be turned they won't move out of their way they're stubborn they're stiff-necked resistant to God's leading they're resistant to his authority and lordship over them and the reason we don't do what God says it's because at the core of our being, we're resisting him as king of our lives. You ever feel frustrated, like, why won't my kids just do what they say? It's because they're, they want to do things their own way, right? They're rejecting your authority. They're not wanting to do um, the things that you're asking them to do because they want to do it their way. And we do the same thing with God. I, so often, I just every time I think more, I think about parenting with Hudson, the more I'm like, wow, we never really grow out of the things we do as kids. We just become a little more sly and subtle about it. We hide it a little better. And it's like, wow, we do all the same things. You know, we throw a tantrum to God or whoever when we don't get our way. And we're resistant to people telling us what to do and all these things. And our heart is hard like a stone. And I did bring a rock, but I forgot to get it out of my bag. But this can do, it's like a rock. If you had a rock in your hand, it's like, I can squeeze this all I want. And you can't make an impression on it. You can't. Make it do something. You can't mold it. You can't shape it. 
this isn't a rock, so maybe we could, but I don't doubt I'm that strong. Wouldn't that be crazy if I was like, oh, great, great point, really proved it there. But if we had a rock, we'd be like, I can't break. And some of you were thinking like, I know limestone's pretty, pretty fragile. Okay, well, all the hard rocks, you can't break, do it with your hand. Um, and so you can't make an impression on it. You can't mold it. You can't influence. And God says, that's what your heart is like. You're not letting me mold you and influence you. It's like uh, we're, we're just resistant to him. And when the word, he also says our spirit, there's a problem with our spirit. And when the word for spirit is used in a non-spiritual sense, there's a lot of words in the Bible that are translated in two ways. There's like a religious sense or a spiritual sense and then sort of like the everyday usage. And spirit, when it's used in other places in a non-religious sense, um, is often translated as wind. And it kind of gives us insight on, well, okay, what's our spirit? Uh, and wind, if you think about it, when it blows into a room or blows through the trees, like you see lots of stuff move, but you don't see the spirit. And so our spirit is this thing inside of us. Um, it's the part of us that kind of like moves and animates our being. Like the wind blows in and it animates things, but you don't see it. And our spirit is this thing inside of us that why, kind of like what do you, what, what kind of sense about you uh, do you have? You know, you, we might say somebody has a bitter spirit or a joyful spirit. It's like, man, they're just always bitter. Like that's the thing that kind of like is animating their being or like oh they're always joyful it's like joy is always animating their being and the spirit god says the problem with our spirit is that it's a selfish one resistant to him and the spirit in us moves and animates us to act for ourselves and in our own interest but god says he's going to change that i'm going to put my spirit inside of you so what animates you what motivates you what excites you is to do my will is to do what i'm doing is to be moved to live for me god says i'm going to put a spirit in you that moves you to live for me. And the truth is we need more than a sin management strategy. We need more than three steps to stop sinning. We need to be transformed from the inside out. And I kept thinking of it like, like whack-a-mole. It's like if God's like, okay, I'm going to clean you up for those sins. And it's like, don't, don't. you know, he's just always, he's always going to be like, clean, clean, clean. It's like every second he's like, I need to change something internally. So you'll actually just stop sinning and you'll start wanting to obey me and so you know if any of us think like yeah i can just i'm gonna break these bad habits i'm gonna break these addictions i'm gonna break these ways i keep hurting other people and you're just gonna be like i'm just gonna you know pull myself up and i'm just gonna do it like you are just gonna fail over and over again we always need to look to god's power as the one who can give us the internal change because we don't just need a new paint job we need a new engine fourth to make the truth about him known god recreates to make the truth about him known God recreates verses 28 through 38 we won't read through all those again we actually didn't even read the, the last couple of verses but in there God describes what's going to happen in this land when I return you and he's describing how it's going to be abundant and filled with blessing and there's going to be plenty and this is this picture of everything being as it should be God's like I'm going to cl cleanse the land not only am I going to cleanse you and make you new from the inside out I'm going to cleanse this land I'm going to make the creation uh, all new and this the land that was desolate he says is going to be like the garden of Eden and the vision is that life will be like God intended at the beginning not only new creation in us, but new creation in the earth. And when the Israelites do return, things never, they eventually do um, some hundred years later or something like that. I don't remember the exact number. But they come back and they're like, man, things aren't quite even the same as when we left. 
And it's certainly not as glorious as God was telling us it's going to be. And they rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and they build a new temple. But the people, like the, kind of like the old folks that had seen the previous temple and now had come back from exile in Babylon and see this new one, they wept. Actually, you can read about it in the book of Nehemiah or Ezra, one of those two. And they weep because they're like, this is nothing compared to what the old one, you know, second edition is not even close to what the first one was like. It's like, man, what is going on? It's just not the same as it was. And God's glory never came back to dwell in it. But God's glory would return when Jesus came. When we, gospel according to John tells us, when we people saw Jesus, they saw God's glory in the flesh, not just his presence dwelling in the temple. And Jesus talked about, you know, destroy this temple, and three days it will be raised again. And people are like, you're not going to destroy the temple. This thing's awesome. And then later on they realize, oh, he was talking about his body, his body was the temple of God's presence of God's glory and people were seeing it and Jesus promises that when he comes again in glory his second time he will make all things new and his people will inherit a new creation free from the destructive effects of sin and today you can walk out with this truth that connects us with Christmas know that Jesus is the perfect picture of what's true about God all these things God's acting to make the truth about him known. And Jesus is the perfect picture of what's true about God. Jesus is the perfect picture of what's true about God. And God said he's, he's going to do all this to make the truth about him known. He's going to rescue his people from exile. He's going to cleanse them from their sin. He'll renew them from the inside out. And he's going to cleanse all of creation from sin's defilement. You can read about that happening in Romans 8. Paul talks about that. And Jesus came as God in the flesh to fulfill of what all, all of what God says here. Jesus came as the, the best representation of God's name, his character, his will, his desires. And when Jesus died on the cross, we'll talk about his death, resurrection, um, and then how both those are one package. But when Jesus died on the cross, he showed God's justice. Because on the cross, Jesus is taking the penalty for our sin. And it shows us this is how seriously God takes us worshiping other gods, how seriously he takes us breaking commitments to him, how seriously he takes us rejecting his kingship and his authority over us. You know, some, and it's sometimes we can just take it so lightly, like, oh, you know, it's not a big deal. I just keep struggling with this thing, and it's not a big deal that I do it. And it's like, we need to realize Jesus died for it. If it wasn't a big deal, Jesus wouldn't have become a little baby in a manger and grown up to die for our sins. If it wasn't a big deal, God wouldn't have taken it so seriously. But Jesus died to satisfy the demands of God's justice. And when Jesus was raised from the dead, he showed God's power. To all those watching, Jesus looked weak. This guy claims to be king. You know, we sing, we're going to sing Hark the Herald Angels, and we have the verse in Luke 2 talks about, like, uh, angels say, this is good news of great joy, for unto us today is born a Savior in the city of David. And it's like, this guy came to be king? To save us? He can't even save himself. He's up on this cross. Look, if, was he trying to start some sort of movement or something? Well, he's dead now. He looks like weakness to the watching world. And when we read in Ezekiel 36, uh, it describes nothing less than a resurrection from the dead. God reversed the verdict that people had given about Jesus. He's weak, but... God raised Jesus from the dead, and Philippians 2 tells us, gave him a you know, seat of, of highest honor, the name above every name, King of kings, Lord of lords. Um, no one's higher than Jesus, and it shows God's power. In Ezekiel 36, we need to be resurrected from the dead. We're dead in our sins in the worship of our false gods. If we went to Ezekiel 37, 
Ezekiel sees this vision of this valley, and it's just full of all these dead, dry bones. And then God says, speak to them, Ezekiel. And then they come to life. And it's this image of, Israel, you're just this valley of dead, dry bones, and I'm going to speak to you, and you're going to come to life. And Jesus came, and he died, and he came back to life. And living for ourselves kills us. But Jesus sends his Holy Spirit to live inside of us, to bring us from death to life, so we can die to sin and live for God. And all of this, one shows God's justice, one shows God's power, and all of this shows God's grace. Jesus was born and suffered and died to make God's name known. And Jesus shows us the lengths God has gone to rescue people whom he has absolutely no reason to rescue. Like, like he's saying here, why am I acting? It's not because there's something in you, Israel. It's not because there's something in me or any of us. Why did God act? It's to make himself known, to show him, show us, you know, this is how amazing I am. It's not to show us how amazing we are, like, wow, look how much God was willing to do for us. That shows how amazing we are, and he's willing to give so much to have us. It's like, no, it's all him showing how amazing he is, not how amazing we are. And he's the kind of God who rescues the most dirty and the least deserving. He does all this to show the kind of God that he is. But even though God has done all this, we can still have a hard time making him the most important things in our life, the most important thing in our life. We have a hard time making him more important to us than we are to us. We have a hard time making his desires, his will, his plans and purposes more important than ours. We have a hard time making his kingdom more important to us than our own. Instead of God's will be done, we'd rather it be our will be done. Instead of God's kingdom come, we'd rather our kingdom come. And instead of doing all this, uh, we're upset when our will isn't done. And we're upset that he hasn't done it for us. And it's like, why are we more upset about God's will not being done you know, through me? I'm supposed to be showing people what God's like and should be more upset about that. And we want our kingdom, not his. Even though God went to unimaginable lengths to save us from our sin, we still have a hard time letting go of it. But unless we're let, willing to let go of sin... And of all the false gods we worship, we'll never get more of God. You know, the reason God wants us to let go of things, to give us a heart, you know, fists, I guess you could say fists that aren't hard holding on to things, the reason he wants us to let go is so now we can have more of him in our hand. Let go of that, let go of that thing that you're holding on to that is so much less than me. And he wants us to have less of those things so we can have more of him. And sometimes to get us to let go of them, God will let us have them so that we can see how empty they are. He's like, Israel's like, you want life without me? Okay, this is what it looks like. You know, look how empty this is. And sometimes he'll give us the very, you know, when they're in the wilderness, they're like, God, we want to go back to Egypt so we can eat meat. And he's like, fine, I'm going to put quail on the ground, and you're going to have so much meat that you're not going to know what to do with yourselves. And, you know, they want to go back to Egypt. They want the meat so bad. He's like, fine, I'm going to give it to you. And you can see how unsatisfying this is and how empty it is. So how do we let go of sin and idols to get more of God? First, we're going to have two things for doing this. How do we let go of sin and idols and get more of God? First, we need to get good at saying, it's not about me. We need to get good at saying, it's not about me. Can you imagine how many situations would be changed? How many marital conflicts would be changed? (laughs) It's not about me. Oh, who's it about? It's about God. It's about me loving them, showing the love of God for them. How many situations with... Um, kids or neighbors or coworkers or people we're struggling with, you know, it's not about me. It's not about me. And so let's try saying it together. We can do it 
in unison. One, two, three. It's not, not about, about me. me. Let's even do something even more special. Turn to your neighbor and tell them it's not about you. Good, that was nice. I like that there's laughing in that instead of like anger. You know, spouses could have been like, it's not about you. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad that worked out good. Uh, um, but we need to live for God, not for ourselves. God does not exist for you. He doesn't exist for me. I exist for him, and you exist for him. And you're not the most important, and I'm not the most important. Other people don't exist for you. They exist for God. It's not about us. It's about him, and therefore we're to live for him and to lead others to live for him. Our kids, our neighbors, our co-workers, um, family, whoever it is. And all of God's actions show nothing about how important we are to God. Um, of course, after we're saved, after God makes us his people, he says, you're my treasured possession. Um, you're my inheritance. But it's not like he's saying, like, ooh, there's this treasured possession. I just got to have it. It's after he makes, you know, we're brought into his family. You know, it, it may seem, uh, I don't know, maybe harsh is the word. But I didn't care anything about Hudson until he was part of my family. You know, like, I care. He would mean nothing to me. I wouldn't even know who he is. Um, but because he's my son, now he's, you know, this thing that, that I treasure and adore and cherish. And now God says, I'm bringing you into my family, and now you're my treasured possession. You're my joy, and I cherish you. And I want to take care of you and nourish you. But it's, not, it's only afterwards. And... So God's actions don't show how important we are to God. It shows how important he should be to us. And God does it to show his greatness, his worthiness to be worshipped, how amazing he is, how important he is. So make the truth about him known. It's not to make the truth about how great we are, but how great he is. He acts not for our sake, but for the purpose of making himself known to us. And so God didn't save us to show us how great we are, but how great he is. And second... So we need to get good about at saying it's not about me. Second, we need to hate sin and the false gods we worship. We need to hate sin and the false gods we worship. You could say hate sin and idolatry. Because as long as we think they aren't bad, that bad, we won't be motivated to let go of them. Look what God says, verses 31 to 32. He says this to the people. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. And you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It's not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. And that, you know, that's not a, a message you're going to put on your coffee cup. You loathe yourself. Be ashamed and confounded. And that, you know, that doesn't play very well. Uh, to our like American sensibilities of like no self esteem we need to be built up and he's like you know loathe yourself and like no 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 you're you're good how you are you know people need to accept you for how you are if they don't you know you don't pay attention to them don't have those kind of people in your life and it's like God's like no we need to realize how serious what we've done is and God says in Romans two Paul writes he says God's kindness is what leads us to repentance. And so God is so kind to his people, and now they should be like, what were we thinking? Why are we so unfaithful to you? Why were we not committed to you? I just hate what we did. I hate that we didn't pay attention to you. I hate that we were worshiping these other gods. How could we ever try to find our hope and our joy in them? And God wants us to see the emptiness of sin. 
and idolatry. But how do we do that? Um, well, one might be like, well, how do I hate sin and false gods? Um, one helpful strategy I found um, is writing out, what does this cost me? What does this action, what is this habit, what does treating this person like this cost me? You know, it's kind of like putting a price tag on it. If you're, you know, the big category would be like selfishness. What's the price tag on that? What am I taking out of the wallet of my life to pay for that activity? So let me give you an example because you might be like, I'm not really even sure what that means. Um, so one of the habits I'm trying to break and need to break is the habit of instead of waking up at like 6 a.m., I'll wake up uh, when Hudson wakes up. And so it's like hit the alarm clock. Oh, Hudson's awake. I guess I got to go because I take Hudson, care of Hudson right away in the morning. So that means it's like 6.30 or 6.40. But the purpose of waking up at 6 is I can read my Bible. I can have this quiet time to start the day. Um, but choosing sleep over starting the day that way with God and my Bible is something I'm doing. And so one day I wrote, I wrote out, well, what is this costing me? What am I actually losing to get those extra 30 minutes of sleep? And it's giving me less time in the Bible. Um, and oftentimes I don't have time to work out, um, so it's affecting my spiritual health, my physical health. Uh, it makes it harder to start work on time, so then I'm more stressed, and I feel like I'm starting the day behind, which is stressful. Uh, and then at the end of the week, I feel stressed because I don't feel, man, I didn't get enough done. It's like, that's 15 minutes each day, is, you know, that just ate away at me. And then because of that, I feel like I have to work um, more than the days that I've planned to work, which takes away from time with Katie and with Hudson, and when I don't think I'm getting everything done, I'm supposed to be getting done, I feel like, man, I'm just this fraud, and I'm not earning my paycheck. You know, like everyone thinks they're paying me to be their pastor, and like I'm not getting the things done that I'm supposed to be getting done. You know, this you know, becomes very serious over time, um, my, my thinking. And so I'm taking all of that out of my wallet to pay for hitting snooze. That's how much it's costing me. And it's like, oh, you know, it's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. And then when I start looking at well, this is how kind of all the ripple effects of what that's costing me and these feelings that kind of domino effect down from that one little decision. And seeing all of that written out made me really not like hitting snooze. And the root of the problem is that I'm valuing sleep above getting up to start my day with God by reading his word and praying. It all has this trickle-down effect. And so that's what I mean by, you know, reflect on what's the cost of this for me. And you may wonder, well... I don't really know what idols are. I don't know what false gods are. We don't have little statues typically um, that we're you know, sitting in front of and kneeling and praying to and worshiping, um, which was what they did in that day. Um, but God also reveals lots of things can be an idol. That's why one of the Ten Commandments says, do not covet. Don't want what other people have. You know, be thankful for what I have. But when you think about um, these four Gs, we've been going over these all through Genesis uh, and actually... Something cool we're going to do so that we don't lose them because we're kind of going on a little bit different track for a while where we won't get to use these as much. Um, we're going to have magnets that everyone can have with this design on it so we can remember them. Um, but at the end of each of these, these are, you know, this is what's, this whole passage, what's true about God? He wants to make it known to us. Those are four attributes about God. But then on the second part is the idol we're turning from as we believe that this is true about God. And so control can be an idol. Uh, approval that from others can be an idol. You know, we fear others. I need their approval. I need them to think well of me. I need them to say, uh, you know, you know, you're doing you're doing a great job. And here is just looking for satisfaction. That hunger and thirst that wells up deep within us. It's like, oh, I just need rest. And, and so then we look for something. I need comfort. And so we look for food or alcohol. 
um, or, or sex or video games or TV or sports. It's like that's kind of the thing that gives us comfort and escape and rest. Um, or we are having to prove ourselves, um, which is it's kind of like this idol of um, I need other people's affirmation or respect. Like they see the work I've done and they're saying, you, you know, it's like I'm good enough and now you've proven yourself to another person. All these um, are idols in our life. And so uh, if you think about those things, um, getting, trying to look for uh, control um, to give you things that only God can give you. So you can think of like these three things, love, joy, and peace. And we save with control. If only my kids did as I said, then I'd have peace. If only my spouse did what I want, then I'd feel loved. If only everything went as I wanted it to, then I'd have joy. You know, oh, you know, each single day I just end the day being like, well, this was a horrible day. You know, this was out of control. This didn't happen. Traffic was bad. And it's like, oh, no joy, no peace. I don't feel loved. When it comes to approval, we want others to be pleased with us. We say, if this person's happy with me, I'll feel loved. And I'll feel peace. And I'll feel joyful. And that's living for other people. And then when it comes to satisfaction, we're looking to creative things to fill this hole, to fill, satisfy this hunger that only God can do. And so we'll look um, to those things I mentioned. And so and lastly, when we're looking for respect or affirmation, like, oh, I need to be good enough. So we work really hard to prove ourselves um, that, that we're good enough. And if someone would recognize it, if someone would just see, like, you know, I see that you're good enough. I see that you're working well enough. You're parenting well enough. You're whatever it is well enough, then it's like, oh, if I had their affirmation, if I had somebody's affirmation and respect to show, like, I've proven myself, then we'd be filled with peace and love and joy. And so think about what's it costing you to do to, for each of these things? What's it costing you to try to fill yourself with food or with money or with TV? What's it costing you to live for other people's approval? Um, you just think, I mean, you can think about um, conflict with other people and it's like well what's it cost me to try to prove myself in this to prove that I'm right and um, to prove that I'm not a, as bad a person as they think I am or what does it cost me to be so afraid of them um, that I can't handle them not approving of me or you know not making hard decisions what's that costing in your life well, so let me take a minute um, to write down which of these ones was hitting you that what's the truth that you need to know uh, remember this week that God's great or glorious or good or gracious you know are you looking for control, you're afraid of others, you're looking for satisfaction in other things, you're trying to prove yourself, take a minute, reflect and write down um, which one you need to really focus on. is if you think about it, none of them actually can give you love or joy or peace. You just feel like you're on this treadmill, continually trying to get it, and at the end of the day, you never have it. Um, but as we close, think about Yelp or Google or whatever it is to find reviews about a business. But when people want to find a review about God, uh, they look at his people. This, his reputation, his name is spread through us. And so as we look to him to give us all these things, um, we show a representation of his character to a watching world. Let's pray. Father, thanks for Ezekiel and his challenging words that he uh, calls us to really turn from sin and false gods. Um, but he gives us the good news of what you've done in each of our lives. So would you help us to live in light of that? In your son's name we pray. Amen.